0: Welcome to the Diabetes Canada Healthcare Huddle, a podcast that invites healthcare professionals to listen in on the discussion as we explore a diabetes-related topic. Each episode, we will present a case study, then have a conversation with an expert about the clinical challenge. Finally, we will revisit the case and see how we can apply our new knowledge and tools.
1: Today's webinar is supported by Novartis. We appreciate their support.
0: My name is Dr. Sarah Stafford. I'm an endocrinologist in Surrey, BC, and I'm joined by my colleague, Gail McNeil, who's a diabetes educator and clinical nurse specialist from Toronto. So today we have a very important topic of conversation. I think we all know that kidney disease has an incredibly high prevalence within our individuals with type 2 diabetes and it's critically important that we recognize it and treat it appropriately. So we're very fortunate to have Dr. Louis Girard here joining us to talk about this very important topic. Welcome Dr. Girard.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me today.
0: Dr. Girard has joined the Division of Nephrology at the University of Calgary in July of 2010, and he is a nephrologist and clinical professor of medicine. Within the Division of Nephrology, Dr. Girard focuses on clinical immunology and infectious diseases in chronic kidney disease patients. He is the medical director of the Glomerulonephritis Nephritis Clinic and Apheresis. He is heavily involved in clinical trials and has several peer-reviewed publications, including in the New England Journal of Medicine. Dr. Girard has a strong commitment to education and has won numerous awards for his teaching contributions at all levels of medical training. He has been faculty on numerous national CME endeavors for diabetes and is the co-chair for the Medicine Strategic Clinical Network's CKD in Diabetes subcommittee. Welcome, Louis.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And I think, Gail, this topic comes up all the time in clinic. We know that we have many patients with type 2 diabetes who also have kidney disease. Some know they have kidney disease and some don't even know they have kidney disease. Or if they know they have kidney disease, they might not realize how important it is.
2: Is that common in your practice as well, Gail? So true, Sarah. And thank you for joining us today because the patients, you know, often to say that the family doctor might say, oh, you have chronic kidney disease. And the patient says, well, what does that really mean? And the other thing is, well, what am I supposed to do about it is what they're saying to us. So I'm really going to listen hard today, Lewis, and try to pick up some pointers for educators. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much, Gail. I think this is
0: just an incredibly important topic. And and Louis, let's start out with, is diabetic kidney disease recognized? Do people know they have diabetic kidney disease and or is it even screened for?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Sarah. Um, So it's... um... It's often disturbing to me when I actually see patients in my clinic because frequently they have no clue of why it is that they're there. So I think the communication around chronic kidney disease in general uh, isn't thorough. And I think um, it's not uh, an act of uh, omission. I think that oftentimes care providers aren't clear on what they should uh, discuss with the patient. Um, and if we look at um, data on a national level, um, I'll start with Alberta, but um Uh, In order to make a diagnosis of of chronic kidney disease, we either need to have a low GFR or an ACR. Uh, And when we look in Alberta, uh, um, over the last 12 months, for all the patients who have diabetes and have had a creatinine checked, only about 50% of them have an ACR checked. And this actually is prevalent through the province. And and there's actually national data on that as well to suggest that um, the, the levels are about the same. So I think Um, not only are we having issues with uh, discussing this disease with the patient, but we're also not identifying it as frequently as we should.
0: So why is it important that we measure the urine ACR as well? Is the EGFR not enough on its own?
1: Um, A great question. The ACR is critical in terms of determining if someone has chronic kidney disease. So if we look at our Diabetes Canada guidelines, um, you can see that if a GFR is under 60 for three months, that Uh, diagnosis the patient with chronic kidney disease. But if their ACR is actually over two or three, depending on what cutoff you want to use, that also establishes the diagnosis of chronic kidney disease, uh, assuming it's it's present for three months as well. However, the implication when patients develop uh, kidney disease with protein in the urine or albuminuria is that this is a worse kidney disease. It will progress more quickly And it also puts the patients at high cardiovascular risk and high all-cause mortality risk as well. So establishing that difference between proteinuric and non-proteinuric kidney disease is, is critical. In the past, we didn't have a lot of tools in our toolbox to address that issue. But now we do. And so identifying these patients is even more important because we can actually impact things such as kidney survival, reduce cardiovascular events and actually reduce uh, death events as well.
0: Yeah, so I I totally agree, Louis. I think I see this as a huge gap in clinical care. I have many patients who referred to me for type 2 diabetes management, and they've routinely had their EGFR measured, but I can't find a urine ACR done in the last year or longer. And so we're really missing a huge part of their information about their diabetic kidney disease and cardiovascular risk. So I think increasing awareness of the importance of albuminuria testing is really critical um, at all levels of care, including for patients. Hopefully we can um, encourage patients to ask the question of whether that's been tested or what their numbers are.
1: I completely agree. I think empowering patients will play a big role because we've been doing a lot of things around education and and moving the needle has been challenging. Um, And I, I really worry about those patients, for example, that have normal GFR without an ACR, because we actually know that if those patients have an ACR of 30 or higher, they're actually at high cardiovascular and and kidney risk as well. So we might not even ever see that person. And it turns out with the newest modeling that we're aware of, early intervention is probably the um, best thing that we can do. But if we never identify the patient, we can't intervene early. Um, And I think, you know, I often say ACR is the canary in the mine shaft. It, It often will become positive before the GFR starts to decline.
0: And I think you touch on a really critical point there as well, that these patients exist within family practice, within endocrinology, um, not necessarily in nephrology practice, right? These are patients who've already identified that you are seeing as a nephrologist. And what we really need to do is identify them before they even reach nephrology so that we can treat them um, moving forward.
1: absolutely agree. By by the time they get to me, like there's a lot of uh, bad things going on and, and the risk is quite elevated. Um, That's not to say, though, that intervening in a later stage patient uh, is not useful. It's actually beneficial to to intervene in later stages as well. But the earlier we can find these patients, the better. And the bulk of these patients are going to be sitting in primary care practices or or non-nephrology practices.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the reasons it's so critically important we identify them early is now we have some exciting options that can actually modify progression of diabetic kidney disease. Are there some new things we need to be thinking about?
1: Absolutely. I mean, um, I I, uh, hinted at this earlier, but uh, before we didn't have a lot that we could do from a kidney perspective. So the main thing we could do was introduce an ACE or or ARB at its maximum dose. But in the last several years, we've had multiple developments that are not only um, doing things such as reducing blood pressure or treating diabetes, but also protecting organs and specifically reducing the progression of kidney disease and cardiovascular events, including hospitalization for heart failure. So the pillars have now expanded, and I think the audience will be very familiar with SGLT2 inhibitors, Um, but I don't want to minimize the impact of SGLT2 inhibitors. This is probably the biggest therapeutic uh, development we'll see in our careers uh, in terms of impact on kidney and, and cardiovascular outcomes. So those have become an important part of the pillars of therapy in addition to ACE and ARB. And some of the people may have heard of phenarinone, which is a non mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, and that's a mouthful, but it's sort of a cousin of uh, drugs like spironolactone and aplerinone, but it's actually its own class of medication. Um, and it turns out that the clinical trials in that area also show cardiovascular protection and kidney protection as well. So these medications that we've discussed so far, ACE, SGLT2, and finerenone, all reduce proteinuria in addition to um, protecting these organs. And something that's been exciting is actually the GLP-1 space. So we've actually been using GLP-1s for the cardiovascular protection in patients with chronic kidney disease Uh, But recently, the kidney trial that was looking at semaglutide was stopped early for positivity. And so it looks as though we'll have another pillar. So putting this all together, I kind of feel like we're entering that uh, treatment of heart failure space where we've got guideline directed therapies um, that we need to introduce uh, sequentially in order to ensure that our patients are well treated.
0: Yeah, so Louis, I think this is just an incredibly exciting time because I think for a long time we struggled because we had fewer options that really impacted the progression of diabetic kidney disease, but now there's so much that we're able to do. And so really, you know, we have these pillars of care. We have foundational management like healthy diet and exercise, smoking cessation, weight management. We have the the pillars of management for diabetic kidney disease particularly that ACE ARB, of which we're very familiar now, SGLT2 inhibitors, and, and now some emerging and newer therapies like the non mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist finerenone, and data coming forward with GLP-1 receptor agnes. So I think all of us need to be familiar with these options and be able to engage with our patients and make sure that they are either on these agents or have discussed them with their care providers.
1: Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And I think the more of us as care providers that are aware of this, the, the more likelihood that the patients get treated appropriately. And I think a great example for the um, diabetes crowd is, is finerenone. in of itself doesn't really treat diabetes. It has zero impact on A1C, but it's a, a very important therapy for those patients in terms of protecting their kidneys and hearts. And so Um, by having people who treat diabetes aware of this, I think it's a better way to ensure that those therapies get get initiated. Um, So, you know, this ongoing education and discussion is very important.
0: Absolutely. And now we've talked a lot about diabetic kidney disease in general, are there any kind of individual variations that we need to consider like differences based on sex and gender?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question, Sarah, and I I think I'm going to start with saying that that area, I think overall is poorly explored, but um, there are some sex and gender differences that uh, we're starting to become aware of. So for example, um, in patients who are biologically female, we actually see less incidence of diabetic nephropathy in the premenopausal years, but then we see an acceleration of diabetic kidney disease in the postmenopausal years. So there's good biology To suggest that there are protective effects of estrogen on the kidney, for example, and there are estrogen receptors in the in the kidneys. Um, One of my colleagues, David Collister, has actually been doing um, some studies in terms of kidney disease uh, uh, in patients who are both cis and transgendered, and looking at gender-affirming hormone therapies and its impact on kidney function. And so I think through time uh, we'll be able to understand this issue further. Um, when we look at these large trials, I think the uh, uh, attention to sex and gender differences uh, isn't great. Uh, we know uh, based on uh, male and female status, however, that's collected in the trial that there are no large differences in terms of SGLT2s and, and finerenone, for example. So meaning everyone tends to benefit from it. Uh, but I think we can do better in that regard. Um, and even if you look at some of the heart failure data there's a suggestion that uh, biologically female patients may not uh, benefit as much uh, from an SGLT2 inhibitor, although they, they still do benefit. So um, I think exploring that on the road uh, will be critical so that we can best treat and inform our patients.
0: Yeah, I I definitely agree. I see often in clinical trials that there isn't a broad representation. uh, And so it's really important that we include all individuals with clinical trials, because we can't necessarily generalize across gender and sex. Um, What about racial and ethnic considerations in this area?
1: Yeah, so um, also, I think um, a lot of these trials have been global in nature. So we've seen a lot of races and, and ethnicities enrolled in these clinical trials. And um, from the sort of large cut and sub analysis, we don't see clear um, sort of differences in terms of the clinical trial data from a race or ethnicity perspective. But I think we need to, again, understand uh, the differences in, in those terms and, and how race is not only influenced by by genetics, but also uh, is influ- influenced by systemic barriers uh, to access to care and those sorts of things. So uh, when we look at uh, kidney disease, uh, we have started identifying polymorphisms in certain ethnic groups that would predispose those ethnic groups to having worse kidney disease, including in diabetic kidney disease. So one of the examples I would highlight is um, in uh, people who are of Black descent. Um, there's APOL L1 polymorphisms, which when you have that, it actually predicts that you will have a much worse course in terms of your kidney disease. And what's exciting for me as a glomerular nephritis doctor is I get to see a lot of this sort of uh, cutting edge um, therapies coming out. And we're seeing a lot more therapies that are starting to be able to address genetic uh, uh, polymorphisms and the impact that they have on biology as well. So I hope as we move forward that We'll continue to explore this topic in more detail um, and, and give it the attention that it deserves. So again, we can provide personalized and tailored therapy for patients.
0: Yeah, I think there's so much exciting research ahead of us. How do you think we move the needle? How do we optimize therapy for diabetic kidney disease?
1: I think that's the the magic question, Sarah, is is how do we push this forward? And I think some of the simple things we've discussed today are important. So patient identification and coming up with ways of just getting people to measure ACRs at a rate of better than 50% are important. I think we can draw some uh, on the experiences from some of our colleagues. And I think uh, the cardiologists have done uh, quite well overall in terms of developing clinics to ensure that patients are on the proper therapies and titrated to the right doses. Um, I think having these types of discussions where we have multi-specialty and multidisciplinary education so that we're all on the same page, because I feel for a while, we kind of all went into our own little worlds, but now we're sort of all rejoining. And it's very exciting actually to have a disease like chronic kidney disease and diabetes reunite all of us as as care providers um, and, and I think we need to a little do, you know, everyone needs to do some of everyone else's jobs, right? So as a kidney doctor, I should be paying attention to A1Cs and things like that. And, and non-kidney doctors should be paying attention to uh, kidney disease. And in our province, we're also doing a lot of work in terms of uh, provincial data sets and audit feedback tools to actually um, come back to physicians and say, hey you may not be doing as well as you think you are, or you're doing a great job. And it's not meant to be punitive. It's really to identify where things can be improved. But when you look at surveys and you ask physicians, do they do a good job ordering ACRs? 90, over 90% of physicians say that they do. But then when we see the results of it, we're not seeing it being ordered. So that's kind of some of the tools to, to move that needle forward.
0: Yeah, and I think those are excellent examples. In this last few years, we've really seen this crossover between all of the specialties, primary care, endocrinology, nephrology, cardiology, and all of us really needing to work together to optimize care for patients because of all this data showing the interplay between cardiorenal and metabolic conditions. Gail, when you see patients, how are you going to talk to them about it, whether you notice they have kidney disease that needs to be addressed, or or if they're asking about it, what, what points can we take back to them?
2: I heard really clearly, and I totally agree, this is a multidisciplinary approach that really needs to be done. I mean, the chronic disease aspect, as diabetes educators, we've often been more glucose centric. And I think we are very clear now that we have to broaden out and look at the cardiovascular and the renal sort of aspects. So what I heard very clearly was better testing, right? First of all, when we can always work with our patients with that and explain what the testing should look like and have the advocate, have the patients advocating for themselves with their GPs and in family practice. So the GFR and the ACR needs to be done. Also heard early intervention, so encouraging the patients to have this all the way along. But there's also that word of of hope in there where you said that even later interventions, because we've got fabulous tools. And patients are often asking, what are about all these new tools? So I'm going to take that information back to them, okay, about the three different categories we've got. Um, looking, it's a lot uh, brighter, I guess the the future looks a lot brighter. But I think the take home message is better testing, uh, identification, and it's a multidisciplinary approach, we should be working all together in these different aspects. We're no longer just the, the glucose world. So thank you for your information today. That was great.
0: Yeah, thanks, Gail. I think that's exactly what we need to be taking back. We need to increase the diagnosis, and screening Mm -hmm. for diabetic kidney disease, and then act upon that information, because now we have options to change the trajectory of diabetic kidney disease. So that's really exciting. Thank you so much, Louis, for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a a great discussion. And I look forward to uh, continuing to engage with the diabetes community.
0: Thanks for joining us today. If you have questions about the episode or about becoming a member of the Diabetes Canada professional section, please email professional.membership at diabetes.ca. Special thanks to Adam Humphries for providing the music for today's podcast.